What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Tuesdays, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern, on Pacifica Affiliates WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD in Kasilof and Anchorage, Alaska. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project, streaming, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today we are talking with Melody Peterson. She covered the drug industry for the New York Times for four years. She's a health industry journalist, and she's the author of Our Daily Meds, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Garreau. And we're talking about the prescription drug industry in America and aggressive marketing of medicines. Uh, So thank you for joining us on Madness Radio, Melody Peterson. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So you've written a really amazing um, book that gets into all the different problems with our prescription drug um, system and the uh, drug industry in the U.S. Um, Give us a sense of an overview of what the problem is. and Why did you decide to write the book? What were some of the things that you discovered in your work uh, with the New York Times? My book is about how prescription drugs are promoted in America. And, And one of the bottom line points of my book is that it's not the medications that are the problem. Medicines can definitely help you if you get the right drug at the right time. But what the problem is, is the marketing. You know, marketing is all about selling as much of a product um, to a customer as you can, which might be all right if you're selling something like laundry detergent or or soup or soap or something like that. But it's definitely not okay when you're selling um, medicines um, because every prescription drug has very real risks and you want to make sure that you get the right one. Um, the FDA often cites a study that estimated that more than 100,000 Americans die every year from prescription drugs they took just as the doctor directed. So that's not where the doctor made a mistake or the pharmacist made a mistake or the patient accidentally took too much. That's where supposedly everything went right. Um, So that gives you a sense of just how dangerous these products are. So that would 100,000 people a year dying from prescription um, drug use, that would make it one of the leading causes of death in the U.S., is that right? Absolutely. Yes, that's correct. And we're talking about deaths from risks that are known about the drugs. Right. So those are... you know, with with every prescription drugs, there's there's a lengthy they call it a label um, or the prescribing instructions, and it's everything that the FDA believes that a doctor should know about this medicine before it's prescribed, and and in there it talks about all the potential side effects. So you said that the really it's the marketing that has, has driven this and created this big problem. Was that always the case with the prescription medicine industry? Was there a point at which marketing started to really take over? I know that in your book you talk about the example of uh, Zantac. Zantac came out right around 1980, and that's really when that was the drug that showed the industry that the more money you spent on marketing, the more money you could make in profits. And and 
they didn't find that to be the case when they spent money on science. You know, the, the drug industry wants us to believe that they're spending all this money on science and that that's what drives them. But in reality, they spend far more money on marketing. And um, actually, when I started writing about the drug companies for the New York Times, I um, you know, th- thought I would be at a little bit of a disadvantage because I don't have a science degree. But I quickly figured out that that wasn't what was driving them, that it was this marketing that drove them. And, and a lot of companies actually put their marketers in charge of their scientific lab. For example, at Pfizer, they told me they had this program called Central Research Assist Marketing. They, they refer to it as CRAM, C-R-A-M, Central Research Assist Marketing. So they made it clear that the marketers were overseeing the researchers in the laboratories. So with the example of, of Zantac in 1980, how did that actually work? Now, Zantac is an example of uh, what you call a Me Too drug, which was one of the first uh, blockbusters. Another company had discovered, made made a truly beneficial scientific discovery. It had discovered this drug called Tagamet. It was wonderful because at that time, back in the late in the mid-1970s, if someone had um, an ulcer, a stomach ulcer, there wasn't anything that doctors could do except, you know, for a bleeding ulcer, um, surgery. People would have, you know, their stomachs cut apart. So Tagamet came on the market and people would take Tagamet and it would heal the ulcers. So this was a really good drug. Well, then another company um, called Glaxo, all they did was they had their scientists copy what that other company had done, which doesn't cost much money if you're just going to copy the work of another company. But then they spent um, millions, tens of millions of dollars on marketing to try to convince um, doctors and consumers that its drug, which was called Zantec, was better than Tagamet. And um, this, this was a grand success. Zantec was the first billion-dollar drug for the prescription drug industry. The the re- industry refers to these as blockbuster sellers. And so that that was really the turning point right around 1980 with Zantac. What were some of the marketing techniques that um, Glaxo you know, innovated with uh, Zantac? You, you mentioned that they put huge amount of money into the marketing and advertising instead of putting it into more research. One of the things they did was they charged a 50% premium for Zantac over Tagamet, which sent the message that Zantac must be a better drug if if it you know if it costs 50% more than Tagamet. Then they took that that extra premium price that they were getting and put it into marketing the drug. One thing that they did was they decided they didn't want to just promote it for people suffering from ulcers. They wanted to also promote it for heartburn, which um, 
which affects obviously far more numbers of Americans. And what they did there, they um, they started to refer to heartburn in. Um, they started calling it GERD, which stands for gastro um, reflux disease, but it sounds much more scary than simple heartburn. Um, so there was a lot of promotion of of GERD, of telling the public, well, you might you might be suffering from GERD, and and Zantac can help you. Was this also combined with direct payments to doctors and all the promotions with the pens and the lunches and all the kinds of things that we see today? Everyone knows about those all those television ads um, promoting prescription drugs on t- TV, but in reality, most of the drug industry's marketing dollars goes to physician. There was a study a couple years ago um, that said that nine out of 10 physicians had recently taken gifts or cash from the drug industry. And so this was going on with Zantec. It's, it's, um, so that's involving the sales reps coming to the physician's office with the industry. Actually, they would give out all sorts of trinkets. Although just in the last year, the industry has said we, we aren't going to give out those pins. Um, they've actually changed their practices in that respect. But what they haven't changed is um, they still invite physicians to dinners at really nice restaurants. And they will invite another physician from town to give them a speech to talk to them about why they should be prescribing a certain prescription drug. And so the doctors enjoy this really nice meal with wine and nice food. And then this physician gives them a speech. It's really a sales pitch, but it doesn't seem like a sales pitch because it's the speaker is somebody they know is another physician, so he's he's a colleague and and they and they trust him, but but he or she has actually been trained by the drug company. They're given slides, you know, that the marketers of the drug company have put together, and they're actually getting paid maybe fifteen hundred to three thousand dollars to give this half an hour speech at this nice dinner. And that is one of the primary ways drugs are promoted to doctors in this country. Now, the statistics show that there's more than 500,000 of those dinners, those parties for physicians every year in America. So that's more than a thousand of them going on every day across the country. So it gives you a feel for just how much money they're spending on this. So the success with uh, Zantac, which is uh, an ulcer drug and a heartburn drug, really was the pioneer for a whole new way of doing drug marketing. And then that success, the really aggressive marketing of Zantac and the way in which it was just a really a Me Too drug of Tagamet, really set the tone and became the model for all the other kinds of marketing that followed and really revolutionized the industry. Absolutely. And it's only the speed of the marketing has only increased since 1980. Um, that was just the beginning. And when I was covering the drug industry for the New York Times, I kept coming across all these 
things that I found that were fascinating for a journalist, but also horrifying for me as a patient. For instance, you know, for a story, I would look for some academic medical experts to tell me about whatever drug I was I was writing about. For like, if it was a, a pain pill, I would try to find a, a rheumatologist to talk to, you know, expert on arthritis to talk to me about that that pill. And I found that I could not find a rheumatologist who was not working for the drug industry. At the time I was writing these stories, I was writing about two pain pills, Vioxx, a drug that has now been taken off the market because it's so dangerous, and Celebrex. And these drugs were heavily promoted at the time. And I still remember the day I called the largest society of rheumatologists in the country and I said, you know, I'm I'm looking for an expert on arthritis for this story I'm working on, but I, I can't have anyone who is working for Merck, the manufacturer of Vioxx, or Searle, the, the manufacturer of Celebrex. And they said, oh, we have lots and lots of experts for you to talk to, but they're all consultants to one or both of those companies. And I, I just... I, at the time, I couldn't believe it that that all so many of our medical experts were now actually working for the drug industry on a part-time basis. And the studies show that that when doctors take any kind of of payment or in-kind payment or get anything from drug manufacturers, it definitely influences their prescription patterns. Even a, a very small gift. Um, will influence them. And it's really hard to understate how dangerous this is because back in the 50s when Congress decided we needed to get a prescription for um, a medicine, back in the 1950s you could go into a drugstore and get whatever drug you wanted. You didn't need a prescription. But Congress decided, well, we need the doctor to be the gatekeeper, somebody who is skilled in medicine and independent from the drug companies and the pharmacy and has the patient's interest at the top of their priority list. Um, but now um, our doctors are actually working for the drug industry on a part-time basis or they're going to all these dinners. Um, Actually, the um, most of their continuing medical education, the the credits that they need to keep their licenses paid up, now as much as eighty percent of those classes are funded by the drug industry. So we've lost those you know those independent gatekeepers who can keep us safe. And then we have the situation today where there's 100,000 people or more who die as a result of prescription drug use, you know, using as directed prescription drugs, as you mentioned before. And that's a direct result of this marketing pushing past the consideration of, of drug risks. I mean, you mentioned um, Vioxx, which estimates have been up to 60, 60 or 70,000 people died from the use of Vioxx before it was um, 
discontinued, but there are other examples of drugs where really aggressive marketing using all of the shady practices that we're talking about have really put people at risk and ended up uh, harming and killing people. The result of this aggressive marketing is that now two-thirds of all men, women, and children in America now take at least one prescription drug. And, and the average number of prescriptions per person has increased by 60% in the last 12 years. We're taking more pills than they do in other countries. For example, a study was published last fall that found that American children were three times more likely to take a psychiatric medicine like an antidepressant than children in Europe. So again, you know, the medicines can help you, but it's increasingly clear that doctors are prescribing too many drugs or they're giving patients these heavily marketed new drugs when an older drug that is no longer marketed might help the person more. So that's why this marketing is so dangerous. And I think we're seeing that in the example of the um, atypical antipsychotics like Abilify and Seroquel and Zyprexa, which were really heavily marketed as these new wonder drugs that they don't have the side effects of the the drugs of the past and you know they're worth the much greater price tag that the drug has because they're so much more effective and now that's really been discredited and there's a huge um a huge scandal emerging those are some of the most aggressively marketed drugs um and actually that marketing has got a lot of those companies in trouble there's now government investigations going on and lawsuits um because what some of the companies did was promote these antipsychotics to for patients who they weren't approved for. Um, the drug companies do this all the time because there's a loophole in the law. Doctors can prescribe a drug anyhow they want. Um, I, I mean, even if a, an antipsychotic is just approved for um, adults, a doctor can prescribe it for children. And that's called the off, off-label uh, prescription, right? Right. And it's coming out now through these lawsuits that the drug companies have very aggressively marketed these drugs for unapproved conditions. Um, for instance, they've um, gone into nursing homes and promoted um, the antipsychotics to um, elderly patients who were suffering from dementia, even though they weren't approved for those people. They've, they've also um, marketed the antipsychotics for children, even for now a couple of the antipsychotics are approved for children, but but that's a very recent decision on the part of the FDA. Um, most of these drugs aren't approved for children, but it hasn't stopped the drug industry from telling doctors to prescribe them for children anyway. In your book, you mentioned the example of Neurontin. Do you want to say a little bit about what happened there? I do have a chapter on how this drug called Neurontin was marketed. Um, Neurontin was um, a drug to help patients with epilepsy, to help stop their seizures, um, but it wasn't a very good drug to stop seizures. In fact, the FDA 
would only approve it. They said you, doctors could prescribe it for if if somebody with epilepsy was still having seizures and they wanted a second drug. Neurontin couldn't be their only drug because it just simply didn't work very well. Um, so this posed you know, a big problem for the drug industry. All of this marketing comes through, it's because they need Wall Street, the analysts on Wall Street who are watching these companies and, and telling investors which companies to invest in. It's all driven by that. And if a drug comes on the market and Wall Street you know, the analysts say, oh, we're not excited about this drug at all. You know, the stock price goes down and the executive stock value of their stock options go down. And so this is all, they, they need to convince Wall Street that this drug is going to hit big sales and become a blockbuster. So um, Wall Street wasn't interested in Neurontin. And so the executives decided they were going to, I've looked at thousands of pages of internal documents and and in these documents it's it's very clear that the executive decided well we're going to promote it for they had more than 12 conditions um that they wanted to promote Neurontin for for children with attention deficit disorder for adults with bipolar disorder for um, migraine. They were even thinking at one point to to um, promote it for people who couldn't stop hiccuping. So that's what they did. They had their sales reps go in and talk to the doctors and say, Doc, we're, we're finding um, in our studies that Neurontin works for all these different conditions. And they would do what we were talking about with the dinners. They would invite the doctors to a nice dinner um, actually pay the doctors $500 that for their time that night, invite their speaker in who was also being paid, and the speaker would tell the other doctors how Neurontin could um, help their patients suffering from bipolar disorder, for instance. And the company then tracked the prescriptions um, before and after that dinner, and they could see that this was had dramatic results in terms of prescriptions and sales. And it just pretty soon, Neurontin was one of these billion-dollar selling blockbusters. And we're um, talking about a, a really powerful drug that is is quite risky. I mean, it can cause a lot of harm, Neurontin. Yes, it's like all prescription drugs, it has many um, side effects. Um, one thing about Neurontin, it, it makes people very, very tired. Um, so the FDA has gotten a lot of reports of people who have had accidents, you know, car accidents and, and fallen and hurt themselves badly once they started taking Neurontin. That's that's one of the side effects. There's a lot of controversy over suicide and Neurontin now. Um, there's actually some lawsuits out there, uh, which has been filed by, by the families of patients who say, you know, it, there was this risk of suicide from Neurontin. So it's it's just, you know, these drugs are so dangerous. You just need to be so incredibly careful with them. Well, one of the things that you, you point out just for context, which I thought was a really interesting point, was that the music industry 
uh, DJs are not allowed to accept payments from record labels for playing different songs on the radio. That's considered corruption. It's considered a conflict of interest. But we don't have that regulation against doctors accepting payments for uh, to influence their prescribing. Right. Isn't that, it's amazing when it comes to something like music, playing songs on the radio, you can't, the, the company can't play, pay the DJ. But then when it's comes to something like life and death and medicines, it's all right to give the doctors hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. It's, it's, um, it, it just needs to change. We really need our physicians to be independent again. Well, tell us about how that works on the lobbying level, because I know that the um, it's not really even fair to say that the pharmaceutical industry influences or pressures the regulatory agencies of the government anymore because, in fact, the regulatory agencies of the government have really become an arm of the pharmaceutical industry. When it comes, first of all, to um, campaign donations and lobbying, the drug industry is one of the top um, industries, if not the top of of putting money into campaign donations donations and lobbying in Washington. I think there are more pharmaceutical company log- lobbyists than there are actually congresspeople, is that right? Right. There's there's two lobbyists from the pharmaceutical industry for every member of Congress. So they have, just for decades, they've been able to, to do um, just about whatever they please in Washington. Um, And one of the things that they got through um, was a law that allowed them to also use their money to pay the FDA. Before 1992, the FDA really had one customer, which was us, the public. But Congress passed a law in 1992 that allowed the industry to pay fees to the FDA to get their drugs approved faster. Um, And so what happened was after that law was passed, the FDA really had two customers, us and the drug companies. It's it's very clear that the, the drug companies have power inside the FDA that their executives can call up and say, you know, wait a minute, Um, you need to rethink this. We don't think this is right. There's been surveys of the FDA scientists who say in their surveys that they feel a lot of pressure to please the drug industry. So so that that has become a problem. And there's also this revolving door between um, pharmaceutical employees that end up having positions in governments and in the regulatory um, agencies. And then when they leave that, they go back to the pharmaceutical industry. So a lot of times it's the very same people. Right. There is this revolving door back between the FDA and the drug industry. And another thing that has happened, the FDA, they have a lot of committees where they bring in um, outside doctors to help them make a decision. But what has happened, because as we we're talking about, most of the doctors in the com- in the country now work on a part-time basis for the drug industry. That's who is making up these committees at the FDA too. So again, the influence 
of the drug companies is is um, everywhere inside the FDA. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio. We're speaking with Melody Peterson. She has covered the drug industry for the New York Times and is the author of Our Daily Meds. And we're talking about aggressive marketing of medicines in America by the prescription drug industry. Yeah, you know, I was really interested to have you on the show today to talk about prescription drugs in general, because the, the psychiatric drug issue is just part of a larger problem. And then once we start to talk about prescription drugs in general, we start to see that it's actually part of a larger problem where a lot of industries have this revolving door and undue influence, the way in which the um, uh, pollution industries are regulated, for example, has the same kind of problem. And a lot of this sort of emerged at the same time um, with the changes in the 80s that you mentioned with the regulatory apparatus and the real um, deep conflict of interest starting to, to take place. I wanted to, um, to bring up another piece of the puzzle here. We talked about doctors and them being influenced, and we talked about the watchdogs, the, the government agencies that are supposed to be protecting the, uh, the public and how they've been bought off. And there's also another part, which is the science, that the medical journals and the scientific research itself has been um, influenced and um, aggressively marketed by the pharmaceutical um, industry. Can you tell us about that? Actually, once you understand how the drug industry works, um, this is becomes one of the most frightening parts of it. Actually, the drug companies have learned to use science as a marketing tool, and I say it's frightening because um, you know there there's so many good doctors out there, and I think that more of them are saying, you know, I don't want the sales reps in my office, and I don't, I don't want to go to these dinners anymore. I'm going to read my medical journals and figure out what is best for my patients. But the, the science, the published science, has become so distorted by the industry's marketers that now those physicians are really getting little more than an advertisement that is gussied up and masquerading as science. Actually, the, the industry has this marketing technique that's called publication planning. And in essence, what it is is they want to saturate the world's medical journals, and there are thousands of medical journals, with studies that get doctors to prescribe their drugs. And so what they do, they hire an advertising agency or a marketing firm. So these are the same same firms that are, are putting all those ads you see on television that to write, draft these, these articles in medical journals and help them get, get these articles published. But um, the doctors don't know that an advertising firm has been involved in writing this, this article because with the drug industry, company will do is go out and find a doctor willing to put his or her name on that article as as the author. Um, and in talking to people involved with this, the people on the marketing side and the doctors, it's clear that some of those doctors, you know, hired to be the named author, they will change the draft to align to their way of thinking. 
but other doctors don't change a word and and the company gets exactly what they wanted published in the medical journal. So basically the a lot of the research that's being published in medical journals is actually ghostwritten by pharmaceutical companies as a form of, of marketing because they know that that's what the public and the doctors are going to actually uh, listen to. Um, I had actually had an interesting experience. Um, Elliot Valenstein, um, who is a very well-known um, neuroscientist who's very critical of a lot of the science and the, the corruption of the industry, um, he told a story at an event that, that we did um, several years ago where a relative of his, I think it was a niece of his, was, is a physician who was invited to be one of these ghostwriters on one of these studies. And um, once she had been invited and was going to be this ghostwriter, she asked to see the paper before it was published. And she couldn't actually, she couldn't even get a copy of the paper before it was published. They wouldn't let her read the thing that she was supposedly the author of. And this goes on all the time. Um, I, I, some of the, the marketing firms, they actually brag in their the promotional materials that they put out to the, the drug executives to try to get more business of how they've, they've published, you know, in, in a single year they will get published more than 100 articles on a, a single drug. So it's... Um, it's a real problem. And I don't think that the public really understands how this drug, the, the clinical trials are done. I think a lot of people think that the FDA has done um, some independent studies of these drugs before they approved, but that doesn't happen at all. The, the drug industry does almost all of the clinical trials. So they're, they're testing their own medicines. And it's, it's very clear that you can design a study that, you know, to help you get the results that will, will let you sell more of a drug. For instance, I've come across cases where um, there's a study where a drug company is trying to show that this new drug is better than the old drug. And so if, if you want it to look like it works better than that old drug, you, you give the dose of the old drug to the volunteers in too low of a dose to really help those people so your drug looks better. Or if you want your drug to look safer than that older drug, you pump up the dose of that old drug for the volunteers in that trial so they have more side effects. Um, and, and these are actual cases that um, have independent researchers have found when they start looking at the published science and trying to fi figure out, you know, what really is going on here. Yeah, another example of that that Robert Whitaker, the author of Madden America, discovered was that in some of the so-called effectiveness studies for the antipsychotics, they will take volunteers and they will just cold turkey them off of their other drug. So the person is suddenly taken off of one drug. They have all these side effects from the withdrawal, and then they're given the antipsychotic, the new antipsychotic that they're researching. Lo and behold, their withdrawal 
symptoms go down because they're being put back on a psychiatric drug that they were just withdrawn from. And then that is shown as, as evidence that the drug has effectiveness in dealing with mental illness or mental disorders. So the, si the science has really been um, quite uh, distorted and corrupted here. Right. I write about one of those cases in my book about it was um, of children, um, a drug called Ritalin LA, which is a longer acting form of Ritalin, the short acting Ritalin. And, and these were children. Um, and what the company did, first of all, only children who had had good experiences with Ritalin before, which is methylphenidate. Um, that's in so many of, like Concerta, um, a lot of these drugs have methylphenidate in them. So only kids who had had good experiences were allowed in the trial. And then the trial was set up as sort of two trials. In the first trial, the, the company said, well, we need to find the right dose. And so all the, all the, the, the children volunteers got methylphenidate. And in that part, of course, some of them had side effects and they were dropped out. So you even had a, a better group that you knew were going to respond to the drug. Then there was that washout period and, and none of the kids got the drugs. So you can imagine what happened there. And then um, the group, the second part of the trial, they, they either got the drug or the sugar pill. And um, that was the part that the FDA relied on to prove the drug. And even the FDA said, you know, we know that this has biased the results. But they said, so the, the children um, taking the drug had had such better results than the people taking the sugar pill that the FDA went ahead and approved the drug. But you're right, that, you know, that washout period, that can really can hurt the patients in the trial and, and, and um, bias the results. So they claim to be comparing it against uh, a placebo, a sugar pill, but actually what they're comparing it against is someone who's withdrawing from, from the drug. And, you know, I wanted to ask you about the current discussions for healthcare reforms in the U.S. We're having this big um, debate, but it seems like the debate is really between pretty narrow options, none of which really are going to be getting at the real root of the problem. I mean, I heard a discussion about conflict of interest um, with the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and they were saying, well, we're going to limit the um, participants to something like $10,000. That's all they can receive from the pharmaceutical companies is $10,000, because that'll, that'll help deal with the conflict of interest issue. And it seems like the very idea of conflict of interest or the idea of integrity in science has just gone out the window because any payment is going to be a conflict of interest. You need to have an independent scientific establishment. What are your thoughts about the current healthcare reform proposals and what do you think is really needed, the kind of overhaul and the far-reaching reforms that are needed to really get at the root of this problem? I think my book helps to explain why our current healthcare system is broken. The current system doctors get rewarded um, if they prescribe a drug that makes you sicker. They get paid for each service they provide. Um, so in this system, 
you know, the more tests they do, the more drugs they prescribe, the more money they make. And if, if those drugs and tests and surgeries make you sicker, then they get even more money. So that's, that's a, everything is, is driven, you know, by these profits. That makes me think of the irony of Eli Lilly selling Zyprexa, which is an antipsychotic, is an atypical antipsychotic that has very well established diabetes as a side effect. And then Eli Lilly also has one of its top selling drugs, medications for diabetes. So you have the very logic of profit and marketing doesn't really make sense in a healthcare context, because as you say, the sicker people get, the more profit there is. Right. There's been studies that have shown that, that as much as a third to a half of our the the healthcare payments for drugs and procedures is absolutely unneeded. Um, so none of that is going. You know, the discussion in Washington they aren't thinking about that at all. Um, a third to a half of all the money spent in American medicine is is unneeded. Doesn't actually benefit the patient. No, and in fact, if if you're getting a drug that you don't need, it can only hurt you, you know, so that, that money might actually be hurting people. So it, it, it's just, it's such a mess. And, and like you were talking, the conflicts of interest, um, I think there should be a law that bans those payments to doctors. Fortunately, there is a law that is getting a lot of attention that would at least require the drug companies to disclose the payments they're giving to the doctors so that we would start to learn just how much some of these doctors are making. Senator Grassley has been doing investigations um, in Washington, and he's, he's um, you know, he has subpoena power. <laughs> so he's found out these amazing things that some of these doctors, um, a lot of the doctors he's looked into are psychiatrists. They're making hundreds of thousands of dollars from the drug company. So he, Grassley has actually proposed this law that at least would require the companies to disclose it. So that's, that's a step in the right direction. I do hope it passed, but I think the law needs to go farther and actually just ban the payments altogether. Because both the Democrats and the Republicans are basically themselves on the pharmaceutical lobbyist payroll. So the proposals for healthcare reform are not really threatening the existing system. Right. No, what what is going to happen with the legislation, pieces of legislation out there is we're going to expand the system, basically. You know, the uninsured, they need health care. They desperately need health care. So they, under these this legislation, they will get health care, but they're going to be put in this this very dangerous and corrupt system, um, and costs are going to continue to expand, and um, I'm just fearful that patient care isn't going to improve. So it's, I don't know, it's discouraging to watch. It seems like the debate is being framed as access to treatment, that we have all these uninsured Americans and it's really unfair and um, the system doesn't provide 
um, coverage and health care to all, but there's this deeper problem, which is that the health care that we do provide in the form of primarily prescription drugs isn't something we need more of for anyone. It's actually quite the opposite. We need to rethink what the idea of medical treatment is and rethink what the idea of healthcare is in general. I mean, the top selling um, pharmaceuticals are all related to um, lifestyle and can be are very preventable kinds of problems. We're talking about cholesterol, we're talking about heartburn, antidepressants, and um, high blood pressure are all related to preventable kinds of wellness and lifestyle um, changes that people can make, but there's no money in it. What there's money in is selling drugs after people have the problems. So there's a whole paradigm shift or complete rethinking of what is healthcare that's in the background. I think ultimately, just from the economic standpoint, we're going to have to face some of those questions. Right, absolutely. You know, we spend twice as much on healthcare as the next highest spending country in the world. But yet, when they they look at life expectancy, the U.S. is actually falling. In there's there's at least 40 countries where um, the citizens live have expected lifetimes that are longer than Americans. In fact, a 65-year-old Mexican man is expected to live longer than a 65-year-old American man. So. You know, we're, we keep spending spending more on health care and, and our outcomes are worse. And you really help us understand why that is because the pharmaceutical companies, the prescribed medication is such a central part of health care in the U.S. And it is really discouraging. I mean, there was so much excitement and hope with the Obama administration coming in. And unfortunately, it just seems like we're getting a lot of the same sorts of non-solutions to this problem. Um, Melody, I... I haven't got a lot more time with you, but um, I know that you've just written an article in Men's Health on psychiatric drugs in the military, which is a very disturbing um, trend. Tell us a little bit about that research that you did and what you've discovered. My article is about how it was a couple of years ago um, when the Pentagon decided that um, it was going to be all right to give antidepressants, sleeping pills, anti-anxiety pills, antipsychotics to soldiers on the front line. And they made that decision right when the violence in Iraq had um, had had um, really gotten much worse and, and President Bush had decided you know, we needed 20,000 more soldiers, a surge of manpower there in Iraq. And so the Army and the Marines were scrambling to find enough soldiers and Marines to, to, go, to go to the front lines. What will happen or what has happened is some, the soldiers will come back from Iraq and they need after a few months, they need to go back to the front lines. And and I talked, for my article, I talked to soldiers who, you know, they'd seen terrible things in Iraq, and um, they were just messed up, obviously just messed up from, from being on the front lines. And um, what had happened was they would go to the doctor, the doctor would give them two, three, four medicines, and then they send them back to Iraq. So so that decision by the Pentagon was a way to help the military, you know, keep up, find enough manpower to um, 
fight these two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So rather than saying people are having psychological problems and trauma and so they're not fit to go back, what they're saying is, well, actually, if you, we just give you these medications, then suddenly we can just put you back in the front lines. Right. And, you know, talking to psychiatrists about that, what they thought, um, the thing is, these drugs have a lot of side effects. Um, and so a person, you know, here dealing with mental illness here in the U.S. Um, can, there's, they can find ways to deal with side effects like just drowsiness. Um, but if you're on the front lines, just think if, if a drug is making you dizzy or drowsy, how, how that can put you in danger and actually all the guys around you, it can, it can create more danger for everyone. Um, one of the, the Marines I wrote about, he um, was sent back to Iraq with um, a drug called clonopin, Which is uh, benzodiazepine. Yes. And um, he ran out of Klonopin. Um, if you and and his superiors told him, well, sorry, there's no Klonopin anywhere in Iraq, and so they they gave him a drug called Seroquel, saying, you know, take this instead. Well, um, that just caused terrible, terrible side effects for him. He one night he he woke up and he was face down in the sand with his rifle under him. He, you know, a truck went by and rumbling and it woke him up and, you know, he was out of his head. He says, I could have shot anyone. Um, and he was suffering from, you know, the withdrawal of clonopin. If you read that drug's label, it says, don't stop it abruptly because it can cause hallucinations and all sorts of problems. And, right. and so it's just an example of how that Pentagon p policy of putting, um, giving psychiatric drugs to soldiers on the front line, how it can make things more dangerous in Iraq and Afghanistan. Melody, tell us again the name of your um, book and also if people wanted to get in touch with you, how they could contact you. Sure. My book is called Our Daily Meds, and I have a website um, where you can get in touch with me and, and find out some more information. The website is um, www.ourdailymedsthebook.com. Melody Peterson, thank you for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to an interview with Melody Peterson. She has covered the drug industry for the New York Times for four years. She's a health industry journalist, and her book is Our Daily Meds. That is all the time we have this week on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio broadcasts every Tuesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern, on Pacifica Affiliates WXOJLPFM, Northampton, Massachusetts, and KWMD Kasilov and Anchorage, Alaska. Co produced by peer run mental health communities Freedom Center.org and The Icarus Project.net. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall. Music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness, Radio, 
To help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.